Hi guys, it's Shawnee and welcome back to Wallace Scotland podcast and today we have a special guest again, Emma, if you remember from the Dennis Nielsen episode from a couple of weeks ago. Hey Emma. Hi again. Hi. (laughs) So we're back again with the promised episode of Birkin here, which we talked about when we were doing the Dennis Nielsen episode, well, like a month ago. Yes, it was now. Yeah, it seems like so long ago though, doesn't it? But we're going to get right into it this time because last time you had, what, how much editing to do? Like, Oh, it was like three hours worth of us just talking shit. To be fair, we hadn't spoke to each other for a good while for, before that. Yeah, that's yeah. true. So we like caught up and did a case at the same time. Yes, so we're doing Birkin here, which is Emma's pick. So what's like the general gist of Birkin here that you know of? And then we'll go like into the case. Well, I'll start with the wee, I'm going to start with the wee rhyme. Is that okay? Yeah, I'll do that. Up the close and down the stair in the house with Birkin here. Burke's the butcher. Here's the thief. Knocks the man who buys the beef. That was cool. There you go. I didn't even see that when I was doing my research. So that's pretty oh, poor of me. song. <laughs> That they used to sing. Oh, so like, like a rhyme. You know, yeah, like a wee rhyme. You know, like Freddy Krueger had a wee rhyme? Yes, my favourite. Well, working here had a wee rhyme too. So it was like a nursery rhyme of horror stories from Edinburgh's children. Yeah, nursery rhymes are all a bit scary back then, for weren't they? True, like um, the plague. And oranges what, and lemons. What was, what was the plague one? Remember? Ring a ring of roses. I ring a ring of roses, that's I know, it. It's a bit, you know, a bit relevant, isn't it? Oh, that is very relevant. I didn't even click. <laughs> yeah, a tissue, a tissue, we all fell down. True. I, I wonder, recently I found out actually that was about the, the plague. But yeah, I wonder if that's just like Britain. What? Like nursery rhymes like that. Yeah, it's like old Victorian ones. They were always a bit more. It was always the Victorians. So, Birkenhair, i.e. the Westport Murders, were a series of murders committed in Edinburgh between November 1827 to the 31st of October 1828. On Monday, November 3rd, 1828, Edinburgh woke to the horrifying news that the most atrocious murders of the century had been committed in the Westport district of Old Town in Edinburgh. Brendan Dines Burke and William Hare, along with wife Helen and Margaret, were accused of killing 16 people over the course of 12 months to sell their cadavers as subjects for dissection. William Hare emigrated from Northern Ireland to the UK and worked along with many Irish immigrants on the Union Canal before moving to Edinburgh where he opened a lodging house. And we'll talk a wee bit more about that in a wee bit. William Burke, who was Brendan Dines Burke, but also known as William Burke. William Burke was born in Urney, County Tyrone in 1792 and moved to Scotland around 1815. So let's talk a wee bit about William Burke first and his history. William Burke was an Irish Navy labourer who came to Scotland to work on the Union Canal. His parents were really poor, but they were 
really respectable so they didn't have a lot of money but people knew of them and knew that they were like a good household they found hope that their sons would one day like rise above the station that they were at they basically devoted everything that they did have to their sons so that they could rise above a level they gave them like a better than known education at the time for how poor they actually were when Burke was at school, he was distinguished as a scholar. He was described as being a clean, active, good-looking boy. His parents were strict Catholics, but he was taken into the service of a Presbyterian clergyman. He went to work for this Presbyterian clergyman and he went to live with him as well. But when he outgrew the minister's work, he was recommended by the clergyman to another gentleman to go and work for him and he remained in this guy's employment for several years. He became really anxious to learn a trade after this because at this point he'd only really worked for these two guys basically as as servicemen. The gopher. I like the gopher, yeah. He was like basically just getting told what to do and when to do it and it was an extra pair of hands around for these people. Like so he didn't really have a trade or anything that was like worthwhile he was basically just being somebody's gopher like you said mm. so he was anxious to get something behind his back that would be an actual trade so he went to work for the local baker and that only lasted five months because he like quickly outgrew the work he thought it was too hard and he became like tired of it really fast basically so the next thing he tries is becoming a linen weaver and he soon got really disgusted with this work the amount of work that was required for the little pay that it gave you. So it was like high um, high workloads, heavy days, long days, little pay. And he wasn't into that. I think he was like one of these guys that wanted like, a, what's it called? Like a get quick rich scheme. Yeah. So he then goes and he enlists in the military. His brother at the time, who was called Constantine, had attained the rank of a non-commissioned officer by this point. And he was selected as an officer when he joined due to the fact that he had like such a smart look about him. Obviously, he was quite well groomed. He'd worked for gentlemen and things like this. So he had that look about him and the military were quite taken by this and wanted someone that looked like that to be an officer to represent them. So while in the army he married a woman in County Mayo. After seven years service his regiment was disbanded and he went home to his wife but shortly after he received a position as a groom and body servant to another gentleman. He was there with him and his service for three years. As there was a great demand for labourers at this time on the Union Canal he he abandoned his wife and came to Scotland. They never had any children at this point as well. I don't even think he ever seen her again after that. I never found anything to say that he went back or anything. There was a bit of a drama as well because when he moved to Scotland and started working on the canal, he met a woman called Helen McDougall and she still lived with her parents and was described as being a really good looking, merry, good natured and 
considerably easy of virtue. Okay. So she soon became like super fond of Burke and started following him about everywhere. Gave him like free spirits and beers to refresh him from his heavy work in the hot summer days in Scotland. Because, you know, we get loads of them. <laughs> oh, I don't know. Maybe the weather was nicer back then. It must have been. So she eventually ran away with him and was, like, completely besotted by him. And the drama at the time was that, obviously, he was married and his wife was back in Ireland, who had, he had abandoned. And at this point, he was still going to church and things like this. And he was part of his, like, congregation back in Ireland still. But... Once they find out about his, like, goings-on with Helen, basically the church had, like, shunned him. And that's when he, like, pretty much lost all contact with his wife, if you want to, like, air quote it. So him and Helen were now a couple, and his wife that was in Ireland was now no longer anything to do with him. I think the the church over there had pretty much said, like, you're free of him because he's abandoned you and done all this to you and you've been a loyal wife, so it's not your fault. And they, like, n- annulled it or whatever. I'm not too, like, good with the, the church speak, but you know what I mean. Burke treated her with the greatest kindness and acknowledged her as his wife, even though they weren't married. She returned the feelings and was pretty besotted by him and strongly stood by him the whole time, even through his trial and everything that went on later in life. Yeah, because they were were both arrested. Aye, but the main blame kind of went on him. Yeah, I think she, I don't know, I think she got, she got charged, I think, for one of the murders, but I'm sure you'll get on to that, but yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, she stuck by him, that's my point. That she stood by her man. She did the whole time. I think uh, at the end she had escaped to Australia because she just got mobbed. Oh, yeah. And it was a big thing back then as well to immigrate over to Australia, so it's pretty easy that if you want to escape the Biggest thing that had ever happened in Scotland at this point, you know, because it was so widely reported and everyone wanted to know what was going on. If you wanted to escape, you just like hop on the boat to Australia. Mm-hmm. See you later. So they spent time going round and round the country, looking for work, taking bits and bobs here and there. Starting at first by going to the east of Scotland and they worked in the harvest. When this all came to an end, he then went to Edinburgh. He tried his hand at shoemaking, but wasn't very good at it, so quickly moved on to the next thing, which was working in Leith. This turned out to be another form of heavy work, and it was just like labouring and things like that in and around Leith and Edinburgh. And he, it wasn't for him again, because obviously we know we know, we know know him. He's not one for taking up hard labour. He wants an easy payday. So again, he found himself back at the canal, but he left it again for a second time to go to the harvest again. So literally his whole life, he's just spent dodging around jobs and never really sticking at one thing. And it's just becoming like a pattern. I know back then, like loads of people done that anyway, though, because there was jobs like the harvest that you would do at one time a year. And then in the winter, you would go and do like something else and blah, blah, blah. But he seems to be like jumping about way more than the average person. What would you say? He kicked the job down or he was just restless or what you said, easy? I, I think, well, I don't, we don't know, obviously, but. 
I feel like it's probably just couldn't keep a job down. It's probably just one of these people that doesn't really know what hard work is. So therefore they jump about jobs all the time. I suppose, I don't, I don't know. If you did, but I don't know. See if nowadays, for if you emigrated to another country, for would you not hop around for? Well, yeah, I suppose like there's all these people these days that go over to Australia and then they do like fruit picking for the first wee while because that's like kind of mandatory in Australia if you go over to work and travel. And then they like hop about jobs. But like this guy like moved to Scotland and he wasn't going back to England, eh, England, Ireland because obviously it, like he had been abandoned over there because he abandoned his wife. So everyone that he used to know shunned him. So he was never going back. Basically living a married life with Helen at this point. So they weren't settling down. So obviously we knew he grew up Catholic, but I obviously mentioned they would visit like the Protestant churches like because he was like doing that work with the Presbyterian clergyman guy. So he wasn't like a bigot or anything. He was like pretty indifferent when it came to religion and stuff, which obviously led to him living this married life with Helen, but not actually being married. So he was quite liberal for the time, as well as being a bit like of a dosser, you know, because he was like doing kind of just jumping about from place to place, taking yeah. on all these jobs. Yeah, that's what I was saying. He obviously didn't like working hard for. You know, what you said, a little bit of money. Yeah, he didn't want to work hard for money. He wanted to just have money. And then he spent, like, all his Sundays drinking. So, obviously, he's not very holy because he spent, like, nearly every Sunday it was noted that he was just, like, down the pub drinking with his workmates. Yeah, wasting his hard-earned cash that he wanted. Exactly. But he didn't care because, you know, men, they like to go to the pub. That's that's what they do. No, he's been a bit sexist now. Just a little bit. <laughs> Just a little bit. I like, well, come on. Well, there's plenty it's of true. like a good drink too, for we? Well, us. Well, right. anyway, from Peebles, he went a third time to the harvest. And when he was done there, he basically couldn't find work straight away. He was trying like everywhere around Edinburgh and stuff, couldn't find any work. So he decided that Glasgow was the place to go while he was going to Glasgow from where he was he travelled through Westport and he was on a canal boat I think from what I've seen. He went into this lodging house for some refreshments and this is where the story starts because he meets Hare and his wife Margaret who owned the lodging house. Hare and Margaret persuade Helen and Burke to stay on a few days at the lodging house. Time for a 30 second break. Let's listen to the trailer from the lovely Emma at the True Crime Witch podcast. Good evening friends. I'm Emma, the host of the True Crime Witch podcast. Join me every other week as we delve into everything murderous, mysterious and downright macabre. You can find the podcast by searching the True Crime Witch podcast on all of your favourite podcast apps and search for us on social media just using the True Crime Witch. Hope to see you there. Remember friends, stay safe and stay spooky. 
this is where we come to William Hare. So let's talk a bit about William Hare and where he came from and how he came about. So William Hare was an Irish Navy manual labourer who came across to Scotland to work on the Union Canal as well. This was in the 1820s. He was born near Newry in Ireland and was described as being uncloth, whatever that means, illiterate, quarrelsome and altogether a very unpleasant person. Yeah, he sounds lovely. Yeah, uncouth at being like rude and good manners. Well, that makes sense considering like literally every report I read was like, yeah, he's not a nice dude. Yeah, I would say lacking in manners. Yeah. Okay. So he stopped working for the Union Canal and moved to Edinburgh and took up residence in this lodging house in Tanner's Close. This was like a really overcrowded area of town because it was between Kingstables Road and the Grass Market in Westport and it was quite um, quite chocker because it was like right next to the centre but it was also quite poor because you know what it was like like with Mary King's Close and things like that there was like loads of people basically living underground because it was Edinburgh and there wasn't a lot of space in town. Yeah, probably wouldn't have been. A, I don't think it would have been the nicest place to stay. No, it would have been like poor, smelly, because there's not like great sewage systems and like modern day things like that, running water and things. It's Victorian times. Yeah, it's just not like dirty, dirty, smelly, and lots of people. Not, not ideal. Doesn't sound like somewhere that I would thrive. I don't know, even now I wouldn't want to live down there. Like, no, even that, now. Grass market and that. <laughs> even now, still smelly, dirty. I'm going to go as far as smelly and dirty. How? It is. <laughs> well, no, I'm talking about above the ground floor. Oh, no, but I'm talking about above the ground as well because the grass market just reeks a pish from people being out drinking and then peeing on the streets. Well, maybe after, maybe <laughs> after like, the weekend. Uh, yeah. On a Monday morning, you're like, nah, no walking down the grass market. <laughs> no. No. So while he was living in that area and living in this lodging house, he took a fancy to the wife of the owner of the lodging house called Margaret Laird, which resulted in him actually being thrown out the house because I think they were like obviously dabbling in a wee bit of an affair. However, the owner died shortly after Hare was chucked out. So he just moved straight back in and basically took over the running of the lodging house with Margaret. And even though I didn't find anything that like suspected foul play, your mind like automatically just thinks like that, doesn't it? Because you're like, okay, so hold on. You moved into a lodging house. You started up an affair with the wife of the owner. He finds out you get chucked out. Not that long after, he dies. And then you basically just slot yourself into his place and start living his life. So, like, that's a bit red flaggy to me. What? You know? Just, like, swooping in there and... Yeah. Aye. Does that not just raise, like, a question of, like, well, that was very convenient. That he just died? 
his why did no one question that? Especially after they found out that he was like killing people later in life. And now it's just kind of like brushed past and all the research that I done where it was like, oh yeah, so he was doing an affair, the guy died, he moved in, and then that was it. And I'm like, why are people not talking about the fact that that's like really like that raises a red flag to me, like very convenient. Maybe he done something to that guy. Question Maybe mark. Margaret Maybe Margaret did it exactly because she was like, "Well, I'm well, she's, done she's with by. you." She she was another one that stopped by. Yeah, these women one. were like very like we're standing by our men, even though they're like mass serial killers, and they were in no means innocent either. To be fair, because they knew what was happening the whole time and were complicit. So anyway, that raises red flags to me, but. That's just me. So, you know, there's no proof that either Margaret or Hare done anything to Margaret's husband that passed away. But it doesn't sit right. They lived this unmarried couple after that. Yes. On this lodging house, there was a massive painted letters, beds to lay, and his general charge was three pence a night. Three pence is crazy. Like, could you imagine, like, going down, like, just going to Glasgow for a night and being like, oh, three P for a room, thank you. Well, I'm rubbish at maths, but if a hundred pound was a, if a hundred pounds was a pound, then three pence would be what thirty P or something. Oh, don't ask me. I can't do math. <laughs> but yeah, probably well, something like right. that. Maybe thirteen P or something. I don't know. Like, obviously, whoever's listening to this will be like screaming how much it actually is, but <laughs> not that hard to work out. Like. Why are these stupid Scottish people not good at maths? It's basic math, but we still are just too lazy to even work it out. So anyway, one pound back in Birkenhair's day was, what, 99 pounds, you said? So three pence a night is blank. Let us know on Twitter. That that was just a threepence, like a three-pence. A threepence. Yeah. Yeah. So... If someone can work that out for us, thank you. <laughs> Put it on Twitter. <laughs> Three pounds a night. Crazy cheap. But it was also noted as being called around this area being Hare's Horrid Shambles. So, like, the lodge had basically become quite notorious. And I think it was because, obviously, this guy was just put down as being like the most un like awful guy like just really unpleasant to deal with so why would you like want to go stay at his lodging house when he was like rude and stuff like that so yeah he came quite notorious for not exactly being the most gracious host so shortly after Burke and Helen moved into the lodging house this is when the old soldier named Donald died of natural causes. He just died of an illness, owning here some rent. That was about £4 at the time, but I don't know what that like equates to in this day and age money, if you know what I mean, because it will obviously be a lot more. £1 in 1826 is worth £99.85 today. Okay, so... Still not a lot of money, really. No, not to... Not, no, not a <laughs> lot of money. No, it's not not a lot of money at all, definitely not. But £4 back then was around £400 in rent that he was due oh, so him. Yes, yeah, sorry, I was um, saying that's not a lot of money to kill for. But... No, but he died of natural causes. Okay. 
but they sold his body, he recouped his losses because he was due him the rent. So that would be like if you were renting somewhere and you died mm -hmm. and you were still due your landlord money. And then actually what they would have to do is also you don't have any family, so they're going to have to bury you as well. So they're going to have to pay for that too, which I think they said it was about £7.10 or something that they got back for the body. Okay, yes, it was £7.10 shillings they got back. So yeah, yeah they so, made a wee profit on his body. So he got his rent back plus a wee bit of profit, which would have been, what, about £700, something like that? If it's right, what I've... Worked out. Yeah, it'll be about that. I could be wrong. So you can either lose your rent money and then have to pay for the guy's funeral or you can sell his body and make a wee bit of profit. It was a no-brainer to them, you know? So that's like the only legit case or, you know, like it's not really legit. You shouldn't really be selling people's bodies, but that was the only kind of time that they didn't kill someone. And then it all gets a wee bit more sinister after that. He knew that there was a demand for bodies by Autonomous in Edinburgh at the time. And this is when he got the idea to solve his problems. He was readily received by a man called Dr. Robert Knox, who is basically this doctor in Edinburgh that started working at the Royal Surgeons College or something it was called. He was a lecturer. And it wasn't, it was basically a place that was opened up because the the snootiness of the Edinburgh University, like for doctors and surgeons and things, they weren't very forthcoming with like trying to teach people certain things. And like, obviously Scotland was very progressive at that time as well. We were known for like inventing things and coming up with new things, especially in medical science. So all these new kind of buildings, like what we would probably call colleges these days, but they were called like institutions and things where it was basically lectures and things that were happening, were popping up all over Edinburgh, all trying to outdo each other. So there was like a massive demand for bodies to be able to work on and experiment on and open up to try and reveal the secrets of the human anatomy so that they could obviously bust open another medical marvel or whatever they were going for at the time. So Robert Knox worked here and he was definitely happy to see working here because of this body shortage that was going on in Edinburgh and he even reported to have said to Birkin here that if they were to meet under the same circumstances again in the future, he wouldn't turn them away and he would be providing them some money. So I think that Hares obviously came up with the initial idea of, I need to get rid of this guy and I don't want to pay for it. So, oh, guess what? There's like people want bodies. Let's go sell the body. Made a pretty penny off it, was totally oh, easy yeah. to make the money off it. And then this guy, Robert Knox, is giving him a wee nudge, nudge, wink, wink. By the way, if you can do this again, the money will be there for you. There was a, a notebook that was discovered in a tin box um, buried under Bert's house. 
And William Burke kept a written record of all the murders and the money he made. And he's even, it's really interesting actually because he's got how much he split it. So it's like, for example, say Donald that you spoke about, the pensioner. Mm-hmm. So he got um, £7.10 and it's, he paid William here uh, 4 5 And for himself, he got £3.05. So if you look at that, it actually tells you exactly, it's like a wee, you know. All the evidence they needed, really. Uh huh. So they pretty much decided that after they sold Donald's body and they had all this cash, and obviously they were drinking with it and things like that, they were like, "This is some easy money." And we know that Burke is all up for the get rich quick scheme, and here is a pretty nasty guy that questioned Mark over whether he even killed his wife's ex-husband in my opinion so we know that the two guys are like bada bing this could be a money maker you know mm-hmm. and especially when Robert Knox is so like keen to play the role as well and he wants the bodies and he's basically a kind of like ask no questions tell me no lies kind of thing where he doesn't care where the bodies are coming from as long as he's getting them and he's got the money there quite easily to pay for it. So it's like a win-win for both parties. And they went out in search of more bodies. But obviously, dead bodies are hard to come by. And grave robbing was not as simple as it had been previously before Birkenhair had started up this gig. Because obviously they weren't the ones that invented it. It didn't. They it didn't just come out of nowhere and they started it. Grave robbing and things like this and selling bodies had been a thing for a while back then, and people had cottoned on to it. So basically, what they started doing is they started putting these metal cages over the graves of people. So loved ones, if say like your dad or your granddad or someone passed away these metal cages started getting erected over the grave site so that it made it harder for the grave robbers to get in and steal the body. Plus, obviously, if you don't get the body like straight away, then it's pretty useless to the surgeons because it's already started decomposing and then it's useless to them. So that's another issue that they've got. Another thing that families would do would be that they would actually sit at the graveside and people in the family would rotate and take it in turns to basically guard the body until they knew the body was too decomposed for anyone to want to have to steal it. So that's pretty crazy that in that day and age, it was like a proper thing that people thought about and was it was a everyday concern for people because it was such a lucrative business. So they basically decided that that was way too hard for them, and they went out for blood instead. Barkinghair's first murder victim was sick tenant Joseph Miller, who they plied with whiskey and then they suffocated. Which was their chosen method in the end. Yes, exactly. But after Joseph, there was pretty much no more sickly tenants so that's when they turned to trying to look to lure victims in to the lodging house from the street. Yes, yeah and the only way to do that and to give Knox's um, unmarked bodies was to suffocate them. Yes. Later became known as barking. 
Oh, really? I never knew that. No, that's what you call barking. I don't even think I've ever heard that. Suffocating. That they're barking them. Mm -hmm. Mm. I've never heard that before, but it's cool. Well. (laughs) Well, (laughs) it's it's not cool. Don't suffocate people. People. But in February 1828, that's when they invited this pensioner, Abigail Simpson, to spend the night at the lodging home while she was travelling. So they used the same method as they did with Joseph and served her alcohol with the intention of getting her intoxicated and then they smothered her. They were paid £9, whatever, so it was like basically £10, something like that, for her body. Yes, £9. Hare's wife, Margaret, invited a woman to the inn, plied her with drink, and then sent her to her husband. Next, Burke would encounter two women in the section of Edinburgh known as the Canongate, Mary Peterson and Jeanette Brown. He invited them to breakfast, but Brown left when an argument broke out between Helen and Burke. When she arrived back, she was told that Patterson, her pal, had left with Burke. But in fact, she had already been taken to Dr Knox. She'd already been killed and sold by that point. The two women were described as sex workers so I think that the there wasn't like a huge amount of people looking for them or anything, you know, which is a bit of a shame. So I think that's why they got away with that for quite a while, considering they were quite that they were younger people. It wasn't like that it was a sickly man that had no family or an old pensioner that, you know, was travelling around anyway and obviously there wasn't phones and things like that back then but these two like actually lived in Edinburgh worked as sex workers but again I don't think like the alarm was raised very quickly because of like who they were Mm. but yeah apparently with um, Mary Patterson some of the students that worked with Knox apparently recognised her when they were like dissecting her on the operating table yeah because she was a sex worker in edinburgh and these are like jolly young men getting their rocks off at the weekends when they're not dissecting bodies i never read that but but that's happened it happened again that must have happened i mean it happened a few times but one of the other known times it did happen is they murdered a a children's entertainer who had like a, a deformed foot and that was mm-hmm. instantly recognised by the patients. Of course, yeah, because um, and things like that are it. very noticeable. Like, I know, like Knox denied that he was like, oh, and then just went straight into the lecture by dissecting his face. But, I mean, oh. this Knox guy, he's just as guilty, to be honest. Oh, but, he yeah. came up with the idea, basically. Yeah. He was the one that was like, nudge, nudge, wink, wink, this is what you could go do for me, you know, without having to say it in so many words. Hmm? I think he got off scot-free, didn't he? Yeah. Well, I mean, depends on what you call scot-free, but yeah, pretty much. So after the two sex workers, the next victim was an acquaintance of Burke, who was a beggar woman called Effie. They were paid £10 again for her body. And then Burke, 
apparently saved a woman from the police by claiming that he knew her and he then took her straight off to the lodging house got rid of her the same way and then took her to the medical school a couple hours later the next two victims after that were an old woman and her blind grandson while the grandmother oh yeah 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 well the While the grandmother died of an overdose from painkillers, Hare took the young boy and stretched him over his knee, then proceeded to break his back. They got a lot of money for him. Yes. Both bodies were sold for around £8 each, I think. The next two victims after the grandmother and the grandson were Burke's acquaintances, uh, Mrs. Ulster and one of Helen's relatives, Anne Dougal. The next victim after that was Elizabeth Haldane, who was a former lodger, but she ended up a bit down on her luck and asked to sleep in here stables because obviously she didn't have enough money for a room. So she was like, hey, can you do me a favour? Any chance I can go stay in your stables? bad shout for Elizabeth because obviously they were just like need another body oh she's down on her luck and staying in my stables of course come and stay in my stables I'm gonna kill you and sell your body Jesus Birkin here also murdered her daughter Peggy Haldane only a few months after killing Elizabeth Birkenhair's next victim after that was an even better known person who was the boy that you were talking about with the limp. Daft Jamie. Aye, he was nicknamed Daft Jamie um, because he had um, mental health issues and learning difficulties. So, I mean, not exactly PC of the time, but what can you do? They were Victorians. And his, but his actual name was James Wilson. He was only eighteen as well, which is really sad. Did and they got fifteen pound for him. Yeah, I is I. He got a lot more money for him, but I think that's obviously because he had a deformity, and people that weren't just like your average Joe would earn more money because it gives them more to investigate or you know, when they're actually doing the dissection. So because he had this deformity in his foot, then it gives them a wee bit more to look into on the surgical side of things. So gives them more money. Just like how a woman, the women were always a wee bit more money because that's when they can start like looking into the reproductive side of things and stuff as well. So yeah, a bit sad. But yeah, apparently this um, this James guy, Daft Jamie, he like proper put up a fight though. And uh, apparently it took both of them to kill him. Whereas sometimes obviously one of them would just do the work and the other would be away out getting the next victim or doing whatever they were doing in their life. Or one of them would be plying the drink while the other suffocated, you know. Yeah, but we're getting- we were getting off with careless, obviously killing the two prostitutes that a lot of people knew. And yes. The child in And his mum would like kick up a stink as well when 
Jamie went missing, and because obviously he's only eighteen, so he's still quite a young boy. Obviously, a man at the time because eighteen, but he is learning difficulties and such and such. So his his mum's like knows he's missing, and he's not just ran away or left because he's an adult and can do that he's living with his mum and he's missing so she's kicking up a stink like trying to look for him and I think that's like one of the reasons why they were getting to the end of their mass murder spree because a lot of people that they'd picked before that were people that were just dosing around didn't have any money, didn't have any family, were estranged from their family, were sex workers with other issues and things like that. So there wasn't like a lot of people looking for them. But then when they come to Jamie, that's when obviously he's a lot more well known in the Edinburgh area because of who he was. And he's got someone at home that loves and cares and misses him. Yeah, and I suppose they could have kept them, you know, they should have really just kept them giving them old weight nearly dying people but I suppose that's not very interesting for Knox just you know using the same type of body over and over again yeah so I'm probably thinking you know we need to get some young people now and they're probably getting greedy at this point too yeah because the money looked like it was going up anyway wasn't it well the money's going up because of like we said the the more interesting the person the more money you're getting so yeah, greed is probably a motivating factor in this. And then, like you said, several students actually recognise Jamie as well. So, yeah, Knox cut off his head and his feet were cut off as well so that, like, less people would recognise who he was if both his face and his foot, the both two recognisable characteristics of the guy are right next to each other, you know? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that's just disrespect, man, to the max. And he cut off his face first, like you said as well, which is just absolutely disgusting. Their last victim was Marjorie Campbell Doherty, and Burke lured her into the lodging house by claiming that his mother was also a Doherty, but he had to wait to kill this um, woman because apparently there was lodgers, James and Anne Grey, and they were like basically hanging about and they weren't leaving for a long time. So it, it wasn't quite a like, cupcake simple as they usually were because he's not going to like kill them in front of this, like kill her in front of this couple. So... They eventually. Sorry, I'm just saying it's quite ironic that it was a an Irish woman at the end of the day, isn't it? Yeah, aye. Like way to go full circle, guys. Aye. So they eventually left for the night, and then apparently the neighbours heard Marjorie's death, and that was talked about obviously later. So the next day, Anne Grey, who returns back to the lodging house, became suspicious when Burke wouldn't let her go near her bed. All she wanted to do was go get her stockings. But he was like, nah, 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 you can't do that right now. And a wee bit later on in the day, the Greys were left alone in the house and they're leaving. So they went up and obviously were like, well, what was going on? So they had a look around and then they ended up finding Doherty's body underneath their bed 
on their way to alert the police of what they found, they ran into Helen, who tried to bribe them with an offer of £10 a week in order to stay silent. But these guys were like, nope, I'm going to go to the police. So, like, obviously good, because it's you want them to report these people because they're murdering people. So they go to the police, report them. But Birkin here had already managed to get the body out of the house before the police arrived. Yeah, but, they'd already uh, given it to Knox at that point. That's exactly, because they're quite like fast in their turnover here. They're always like wanting to get the money straight away. They're not wanting to hang about with dead bodies, you know. Plus, the fresher the body for Knox, the more money is going to pay for them. So again, it's all motivated by money. Yeah, I don't know. The, my source that I was reading from, uh, I'd actually said that they were that greedy, but their sheer laziness even contemplated killing and selling their own partner, telling them Margaret if they were short of money, if they needed to. They were actually of course. I know, the ladies that stood by them got probably mobbed everywhere they went afterwards. They would have actually, they, you know, they would even kill them if they needed to. And I bet you Helen and Margaret were like, oh, they would never have done that to us. You are just saying that. Warped. Warped. Anyway, under question, Burke had told the police that Doherty had left at 7am, while Helen actually said to them that she had left in the evening. So police were obviously like, well, hold on, your stories don't match. So they arrested them. And then they got an anonymous tip-off, which led them to Knox. And that's where they bust into his classroom. And they actually found Doherty's body there. So everything is kind of linking up in a nice wee package for the police. And James Gray I went and identified the body of Doherty because obviously they were staying in the lodging house and they had seen her the previous night. So again, nice little pretty parcel for the police. William and Margaret here were arrested soon after because along with James and Anne Gray's evidence to the police that they were all hanging out together and then now she's dead and obviously it's their lodging house, they get arrested. And that ends the murder spree that lasted about 12 months at this point. So the the evidence against both of them was not like hugely overwhelming, but police obviously know what's happened considering that's where she was last found. Two people are saying that they seen the body in the house. Anonymous Tipoff has told them that Birkin here are the ones that have been supplying Knox with bodies. Then they go to Knox's place of work and find the body. So even though it's not like there's no such thing as like forensic evidence and such and such and such, it's still enough for them to say, well, yeah, there's definitely been something going on and this is what we think's happened. But they need more to be able to get like a solid conviction. So at this point, the Lord Advocate that's presiding over the case Sir William Ray offered here immunity from the prosecution if he confessed and agreed to testify against Burke. This is where the two turn on each other. 
Hare's testimony eventually led to the death of Burke. So he was given the death sentence in December 1828 and Hare managed to get off without, obviously, the penalty of death. He did confess to his part in it, but he gets away with the death sentence. Burke was hanged on the 28th of January 1829 and then, which is quite funny... If you ask me, his body was sent to be publicly dissected at the Edinburgh Medical College. Yeah, and it's, I've read, I don't know if it's true, but I'm reading here that some students removed pieces of his skin. They bound a book from it and they stamped on the front in gold, Burke skin, 1829. Wow. I know, I'm going to have to Google it and actually see. Oh, maybe you can and actually, because you've got the computer. You actually see if. There's a picture of that. Yeah, I can find a picture of that. And as well, another thing that was noted on top of the skin thing, which is just ugh, creepy, the dissecting professor, Alex Monroe, dipped his quill into Burke's blood and wrote, this is written in the blood of William Burke, who was hanged in Edinburgh. This blood was taken from his head. Blech. His skeleton, death mask and items made from his tan skin are actually on display at the college's museum today. So we can get pictures of that because it's on their website. And a death mask, do you know what a death mask is? I don't. I'm just going to so, admit it, I don't. Oh, great. So I know what a death mask is, but I can't remember even how I know. But it's just one of these weird facts that I know because I'm into weird stuff. But basically... Back in the day, especially Victorian times, death masks would be made of people, um, notorious people, famous people, and sometimes like loved ones that had like obviously like a lot of money because your average Joe poor person couldn't afford to make a death mask. But on the death of your loved one or someone, someone would take like a plaster cast mask of them so that they would forever know what that person looked like. Okay. So, because obviously, like, videos and cameras and things like that weren't, like, massive. Mm-hmm. I think, you like, photographs, obviously, were coming up round about then. But I think, I don't even know if they had fully been invented at that point. Oh. Because even all the, like, photos that you see of Birkin here from the trial and things like that are all sketched out. There's, there's no, like, pictures. It's more yeah, creepier yeah. than a photo, I think. Oh, definitely. Yeah, so you're going to put that up on your Instagram? Yeah, I'll put that up on Instagram, definitely. I mean, it's creepy, but it's, like, interesting creepy. So Helen was released, and her complicity in the murders was basically not proven, or they they couldn't prove it to a certain extent. And Knox was not prosecuted at all, despite, like, proper public outrage so that's how like earlier when you were like oh but he basically got away scot-free well yes he did in the sense like legally but everybody knew like what his role was in these 16 murders Burke yeah. actually covered for Knox in his final confession mm-hmm. and said that Knox knew nothing of the original cadavers so that's how like he wasn't publicly um, or legally sorry put in jail or anything like that because of Burke's like confession but obviously we know that Knox knows where the bodies are coming from 
because he's a smart man. He's a surgeon. You're yeah, not just going to go mm, fresh yeah. body. Wonder where yeah. you got that from. We've already kind of mentioned what everyone else got up to, but I'll just run through it. So Helen returned to her house, but she was attacked by an angry mob. And she basically returned to her family in Stirling for a wee while. And then it was rumoured that she left for Australia, where apparently she died around 1868. Margaret here also escaped lynching and returned to Ireland and pretty much can't find anything about what she got up to over there. And then Hare was released from prison in February 1829. So, I mean, that's only a whole year. A year, pretty much. Or was it even a whole year? 1829 was only a year after. It wasn't a year. It was October 1828 was when they were, like, caught, basically. So in February 1829, no, he got caught in 28. Ah, right, okay. So So in 1829 in February, so not even a year, no, because he got, no, he got caught in 1828, October. He got released in February 1829. So he didn't even serve a full year for what he'd done. He only served a couple of months. That's crazy. And then Bart got hanged. That's just crazy. And remember, here's the arsehole. Like, he's the one that, like, pretty much started it all and roped Bark into it and then threw him under the bus and then only spent a couple of years in jail, eh, a couple of months even. It's crazy. But basically, a couple of people have, like, said that he spent a couple of, like, whatever months, years as a blind beggar on the streets of London having been mobbed and thrown in a lime pit. However, none of these reports are confirmed. The last known sighting of him was in the English town of Carlisle. Knox kept silent about his dealings with Birkin here, and he continued to employ Edinburgh body snatchers while lecturing on autonomy. After the Autonomy Act was passed in 1832, his popularity among students decreased. His applications for formal positions in the Edinburgh Medical School were completely rejected. He moved to a cancer hospital in London and died in 1862. Yep. But his reputation was destroyed. He had virtually no future in the medical profession and anybody that knew him or knew about him or knew about Birkin here knew about Robert Knox. So he wasn't he wasn't getting anywhere basically but yeah so that's pretty much working here and they're probably like the most famous serial killers in scotland ever i think so yeah because i were told about them as kids there was nursery rhymes we we have been told stories about working here since we were children if, like pretty much everybody in Scotland knows who Birkenhead is. There's been so many films made and books written. I mean, there's a whole section of the museum dedicated to Burke's body. And, you know, there's like websites. There's an official Scottish Edinburgh website. If you go on a, like any official Edinburgh website, there's always a section on Birkenhead. There's like tours around Edinburgh that you can do to this day and it all includes like this is where Birkin here used to live and this is the street they would walk down and this is the pub they would go and drink at so it's like 
I was just going to say, I think that Burke pretty much got dealt a shitty hand. He got royally screwed over by here in every which way. Because he basically took the whole blame when it wasn't even his problem. Like, think back to the very first guy that died. That was nothing even to do with him. It wasn't his problem that a guy had died because it wasn't even his house. Yet he's the one that had to lose his life in the end. Even though he wasn't by any means innocent, it's just crazy that he had to take the full blame, basically. Yeah. So that's the case of Birkin here, and I hope you guys really enjoyed it. So as always, pop on to Instagram and Twitter and all that jazz. Come find us, Lola Scotland. Emma, you're on Twitter. Yeah, I think it's MT17 or something. It's on your... Yeah, you can find it from my Twitter. I'll have it linked. You can go on there. Emma's got a blog. Everybody knows if you've listened to Dennis Nielsen, and we chatted a bit about that. But yeah, pop on there, say hi, Emma. We'll have a chat with you about the Birkin hair case if you want. And I'll see you in the next one. So thanks very much, guys, and see you later. Bye. Bye. Goodbye. Bye. 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 Bye.